Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, May 16th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A couple of tourists in Yellowstone come upon a baby bison, thought it looked cold. So they take it to a ranger station. They tell the ranger it looks cold. The tourists were not dissuaded by the ranger, who's an actual expert in outdooriness. His rationale that bison generally do not get cold. Instead, the tourists insist that something should be done. The park staff does what they can do, which is nothing about a cold bison, but they have to undo what these well-meaning, no wait, searching for a better term, okay, these dumbass tourists did, but they can't. And they try to introduce the bison back to its herd. He is rejected because of the stink of human tourists on him. And the baby bison dies. Very sad story, getting a lot of play. Now, I read about it in the Washington Post, which had this phrase. About 4,900 bison, which recently became America's national mammal, live in Yellowstone. Yellowstone requires visitors to... Whoa, whoa, ho, ho, ho. The U.S. has a national mammal? And it's a bison? More to the point... The U.S. has a national mammal and it's not man? Hello, man, apex predator, the species that voted for some other species to be named national mammal. Only man even knows what a nation is, that he lives in a nation. Dogs, not patriotic. The Mexican small-winged bat doesn't have any concept of being from Mexico. In fact, according to Wikipedia, That species is also known as the Brazilian small-winged bat. Brazil and Mexico are countries four to 5,000 miles apart. Actually, Mike, the southernmost point of Mexico and the northernmost point of Brazil are only 641 miles apart. It doesn't matter. What matters is the bison should not be our national mammal. What should be our national mammal? I say let us look to the states, incubators of democracy and mammal classification. So speaking of that Mexican small-tailed, free-tailed bat... That is Texas's flying mammal. Other state mammals include the nine-banded armadillo. That's the small mammal. The Texas longhorn. That's the large mammal. The blue lacy. That's the state dog. And the American quarter horse. That's the horse mammal. New Jersey's mammal is the horse. Just the horse. Not a specific kind of horse. Lots of other states. They get a little more specific with their horses. Alabama, the racking horse, not the rocking horse. Florida, the cracker horse. I don't know what a cracker horse is. I could see some tourists in Yellowstone going, oh, it's cracking. Mister, it's supposed to crack. It's a cracker horse. Idaho, the Appaloosa horse. Kentucky, the thoroughbred. Massachusetts and Vermont, the Morgan horse. The Missouri fox trotting horse. So a lot of horses. In fact, if you just go by the states, the horse should be the national mammal. Although all these horses were voted on by man. I think the best state mammals, though, and states get crazy. Like Oklahoma has five mammals, a big mammal, a small mammal, a pesky mammal, a smelly mammal. Maine is two mammals, and they're really good for Maine. You got the moose, 
and you got the Maine Coon Cat. Everyone knows those, and everyone knows they're associated with Maine. And if you want to get a little bigger, the outer limits of how many mammals you could have, Wisconsin. They got the badger, the white-tailed deer, the dairy cow, and the American walker spaniel. So one that's fun to root for, one that's fun to drink, one that's fun to pet, and one that's fun to shoot. And none of them are a damn bison. On the show today, I spiel about Republicans with gay kids and how that offers hope. Or actually, when you think about it, kind of the opposite of hope. But first, Paul Ryan, a Republican, no gay kids that we know of, he's been in the news lately, he's been getting to know Donald Trump. He's been exchanging pleasantries, perhaps well wishes. Well, we bring you the story of a woman who did more than just have a meeting with Paul Ryan, who was more than just allowed to testify before Paul Ryan, because after testifying, she got a hug from Paul Ryan. And the question is, what was that hug worth in terms of policy? A couple years ago, the MSNBC, I should say the erstwhile MSNBC show, Melissa Harris-Perry had on a guest, and the guest's name is Tiana Gaines-Turner, and she was talking about the working poor. Perhaps uniquely on television, she is working poor. She was then. She is now. And another guest on that show, a sitting member of Congress, invited Ms. Gaines-Turner to testify before Congress. And eventually there was an invitation, there was a back and forth, the Republicans controlling the committee said we already, the Democrats already have their slot, but eventually it happened. Tiana Gaines-Turner gave testimony and there the chairman of that hearing, Paul Ryan, listened to her. And I'm not going to step on the ending, but let's just say this. There is a resulting short five-minute documentary that's part of something called Take 5 Justice in America, a short documentary series that's produced by AMC's Sundance Now Doc Club. And the name of that documentary is A Hug from Paul Ryan. Good morning, Chairman Ryan and distinguished members of the House Budget Committee. I am an individual who lives in the inner city who just so happens to be right now struggling. So when you were to testify before Congress, what did the people you were working with, maybe some members of the committee, Democrats who are, who didn't want the food subsidy program snap cut, what did they tell you? What did they say they wanted from you so that you could help the cause overall? They wanted me to just come in there and tell my story, to give them just a brief overview of what my life is and the struggles that I've been through, the struggles I go through. And um, I was honored because I felt like I wasn't just telling my story. I was speaking for 40 million people who have suffered with these issues of hunger and poverty. A lot of times people think they know what it's like to walk in our shoes. Until you have actually been through it, you will never know what it's like. Did you hear that day in that hearing or other similar hearings or just in general when Paul Ryan talked about his program, which was essentially it it had to do with block grants, but most experts say it would cut back on the food subsidies. When you heard the talk about this, uh, for the people who were advocating cutting back the food subsidies, were there common things that they were saying that you knew to be wrong or at least not true to your experience? Block granting, I did hear a lot about that, and I feel like that is the worst thing that you can do because who's going to monitor the monitor? You know, who's going to be accountable for that money to know where it's going, what it's going to be used for? Since... 2014, when you testified, do you still use programs? Do you still use pantries? 
Yes. So give me a sense of how often you'll buy food without assistance, how the assistance comes into play to feed your three kids. So I think that it's important for people to understand and the listeners to understand that, for one, no one ever wakes up in the morning and says, I want to visit a food pantry or I want to be on government assistance program. That's number one. For two, that um, normally people who are on these programs are the working poor. We're those who go out and work sometimes two and three jobs to make ends meet. And what's your job? Right now, I work at a recreation center. My husband works at a security firm. All right. And they're both 40-hour-a-week jobs? We're part-time. Okay. So it adds up to what, though? I work about 33 hours a week sometimes, give or take. That's if there's no school out. And my husband works part-time, so he works maybe maybe 20 hours a week. Okay. But it's full-time plus uh, between the two adults in the family. Yeah. yeah. So if yeah. you add our both oh, of our jobs right. together, it, it combines Definitely much more than one full-time job and not nearly enough to feed a family. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So what, what so, are the expenses? What are the costs? So what the expenses it? are, the expenses are you have rent. Right. You have gas, electric, telephone. You know, we have three children with medical disabilities. So they sometimes require things that we can't pay for through the insurance. And we also have two beautiful stepdaughters that also need things. So I think it's important for people to understand that just because you might need a public assistance does not mean that you are weak, does not mean you are lazy, does not mean that you don't want more for you and your family. And I feel like if food stamps is cut, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's the food pantries. Go to the food pantries. Most of the food pantries in my area and in other areas of my witness sisters have closed down. Their churches are not able to keep up with the demand because you have a lot of people who used to donate the food. They're now using the pantries themselves. Right, the food pantry in the community, it's not like the people in the rich suburbs on the main line are coming in. It's the people who go to those churches. Exactly. And if, if they don't have an extra can of asparagus, you're not going to get that can. Exactly. Yeah. And um, just to give it a breakdown, so before me and my husband was working, we would receive $793 in food stamp benefits one time a month. Yeah. That's the last year from the first. Five people in the family. Five people. That's, right. the, that's the last year from the first all the way to the end of the month. Okay. Normally at the end of the month. So that's, off. by the way, so I'm doing the math in my head. That's 200 bucks a week. So per day, that's less than 30 bucks for five people. That's $6 a person, not a meal, $6 a person a day. That's what the government, you know, so if you have three meals, $2 a meal a day, you can't get that. Exactly. And what can you buy on a nutritional meal for you and your kids over for $2? Yeah. So now that we both are working, we went down from $793 to now we're down to $390. As you earn more money, they take your subsidies exactly. away. And right. a lot of people say, well, it's the safety net. And no, we do have a safety net in place, but the safety net has giant holes in it. What's your what's your hourly wage? My hourly wage right now, I just got a raise. It's $12 an hour. All right. And your husband's? His is 11 Okay. So if there was a 15 minimum wage, how much of your problem would go away? It would be solved by dramatically. Yeah. But the problem is, is people say, well, if we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, then we have to cut back on thousands and thousands of jobs. Why is that? Your job, you work in this rec center. That's mm-hmm. a job we want. That's a job we need. You yes. help people, maybe other families like you who need recreation. Right. What I actually do is I help little kids with their homework and different things like that. So I'm an after school person. Right. So when you went before the committee, were you there when members of the committee were either making speeches or saying things that you knew not to be true? Probably in front of you, they wouldn't talk about laziness, but they would be talk about like incentivization to work and tell people that, you know, send people the message that there's this life affirming value to work. Of course there is. But were they saying stuff like that? 
what they were basically doing is they were trying to bait me into an argument. They were taking yeah. my words and they were twisting them. They were actually, to be frank with you, they were trying to make me look like the mad black woman. You know, they were trying to antagonize me in certain ways. They were saying, oh, so so basically what you're saying is that the food stand project doesn't work. That's not what I said. What I said is that we need to improve the program. So after your testimony, Paul Ryan went in for the handshake. And by the way, in his testimony, I thought he was in in his comportment. He was fine. He was solicitous. He was he was nice to you. He seemed he seemed genuinely interested in your story and what you had to say. When I met him, he actually wanted to give me a handshake. Yeah. And I said no. I wanted to give him a hug because I think a hug is more personal. I wanted him to look at me as a mother who is struggling. You know, who works every single day. You know, even when I'm not working, I'm still doing odds and end jobs to just to break in extra money. You know, people in poverty do hair. You know, they might go to the store for their neighbor or something like that. If it's yeah. if watch someone else's kids. Yeah, watch yeah. someone else's kids. So I like to think of myself as like a myth buster. You know, I make sure that you understand and you get the clarity of what you think it might be. Well, speaking of myths, in 2012, Paul Ryan said, we don't want to turn the safety net into a hammock that lulls <laughs> able-bodied people to lives of dependency and complacency that drains them of their will and their incentive to make the most of their lives. Now, what do you think? I think the drain... Was your will drained? I think they're draining us. Mm -hmm. It's not us who's draining these programs. It's them draining the programs, trying to cut them without understanding exactly what's going on. So he has changed his tune, and a couple months ago he said, there was a time when I would talk about a difference between makers and takers in our country, referring to people who accepted government benefits. But as I spent more time listening, really learning the root causes of poverty, I don't know, maybe that was in part due to your testimony, I realized something, I realized I was wrong. Takers weren't how to refer to a single mom stuck in a poverty trap trying to take care of her own family. Most people don't want to be dependent, and to label a whole group of Americans that way was wrong. Well, good, as far as that goes, but... Is that as far as that goes, I guess? That's is as far as it goes. Yeah. I, I think that, for one, I commend him for apologizing mm -hmm. because that's something that a lot of people don't do. Yeah. But I don't think of myself as a taker. I think of us as people who are trying to do the best that we can with the situation that we are in at the time. We don't want to be on these programs forever. The best way for you to lift people out of poverty is for you to understand poverty first. Let's say, though, I said, you know what? I believe you, Tiana. Right. You need these programs. You're using them right. But you know what's going on in the community. How atypical are you? Don't you see a lot of laziness? Don't you see a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse, people trying to get over on the system? So is it most people? Is it a lot of people? Is it too many people that are abusing the system? What do you see from your fellow citizens, the other people in this program? You know, what do you see that's not like you? I don't see many people wasting or abusing the programs. I see people using them for exactly what they're supposed to be used for. You come out of a program, a welfare program that they tell you to go to, and they say, okay, once you get this job, you're now going to have you know, money coming in. You can set up a checking account. You can set up a savings account. And then as soon as you get this job, you lose your CCIS, mm -hmm. which is your child care. You lose a large amount of your food stamps. And sometimes you even lose your transportation. So how do you expect for a mother or a father that's just gotten to this job after being laid off, let's say, for six months, maybe to a year? So once they get in, they lose everything at one time. So what, what, what's the good solution? To extend benefits, to gradually taper them out, to do a smarter calculation about that's how much they tape, that's take exactly, away? That's exactly what they should do. People go to work. Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying very hard to lift themselves up to do the right thing. They get in that job, and then all of a sudden they get a letter, oh, your CCIS has been cut. 
or now you have to pay a copay. The next week, okay, we're now going to cut your food stamps by a hundred to two hundred to four hundred dollars. We're juggling yeah. different things. And every things. program might say, well, we're going to gradually taper you off, but if all, or not so gradually, but if all the programs are doing it at once, it, it hits you like a ton it of bricks. It hits you like a yeah. ton of bricks. Yeah. And then you fall back to exactly where you're at. Yeah. Um, and, and you say fact, to yourself, what's the point of getting a job? You know, it just seems like it's actually set up for you to fall. Yeah. And the burden's on you. And they've done research on this that you have more on your mind than most people do having to navigate the system. And yet they give you more. Your bandwidth, if you will, your mental bandwidth is being taxed because you know, government bureaucracy is so so paranoid about anyone getting over or any waste, fraud, and abuse. You have to document so much of what you do. It takes a burden. And it's so it funny a, because- literally f- a lot of time. A lot of time that yeah. we don't have. And I feel like we waste so much time focusing on the fraud of abuse. If we took half of that energy and spend it on trying to fix these programs- Things would be a lot better. Yeah. So let me ask you the last question. I want to ask you about your kids. You have three kids? I have three kids and two stepdaughters. Do you, are you confident that they will be in the middle class? I'm confident. I'm hoping that they will be. My son is 12 years old. And trust me, he remembers very vividly of being homeless, of sleeping in a hotel twice in his young life. My children have been through some situations that some adults wouldn't be able to bounce back from. And I think that they will take that and they will hold on to it. And that's what I teach them every day. You can be anything and everything that you want to be. Reach for the stars. Sky's the limit. You know, and we try to, to instill that in them. And I don't know if a hug from Paul Ryan will change any of that, but it's early changed. So. But it changed my mind a little bit. It is a part of this short film series, Take Five, Justice in America, five minute films. They play on the Sundance channel and they stream. It brought Tiana Gaines Turner to my attention, and I hope it brought her story to your attention too today. Thank you, Tiana. Thank you so much for having me. And Slate.com is debuting that short film. It's up there today. Go to Slate to check out A Hug from Paul Ryan. And now the spiel, the mind-altering qualities of an heir. So this is Florida Republican Congresswoman Ileana Rose-Latinen. In a video, she's sitting beside her husband and her son, Rodrigo. La familia lo es todo. Nuestro hijo es transgénero. She is saying, family is everything. Our son is transgender. We loved him as Amanda, now as Rodrigo. She goes on to say, we love and accept our children. Well, of course you do. And of course now, Ileana Ross Latinen is one of the few votes for gay and transgender rights among Republicans in Congress. Few, but not only. Senator Jeff Flake, I think my favorite Republican senator, has a second cousin and also his son's best friend. They're both gay. And after Senator Flake talked extensively to his son, he became a yes vote on the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. Senator Rob Portman in 2013 became the first Republican senator to announce his support for gay marriage. Why? Two years before that, his son Will came out to his parents as gay. I had a very personal experience, uh, which is my son came to Jane, my wife and I, um, told us that he was gay and that uh, it was not a choice and that, you know, he, that's just part of who he is and he'd been that way ever since he could remember. And that launched an interesting process for me, which was kind of rethinking my position. I now believe that people ought to have the right to get married. So this gives me an idea, an idea to aid the sweeping national attitudinal change that is just now coming to the Republican Party. In order to change Republican minds, let us assign every member of Congress 
a gay or transgendered kid. Now, it's going to be hard because most Republicans know who their kids are. They already know or strongly think they know if they're gay or not. A lot of these kids aren't going to want to pretend to be gay if they're not. Or if they are gay, they're not going to want to come out just to change minds. But maybe if there's one big vote that's coming up and if you're the son or the daughter of a Republican in Congress and you're for gay rights, you could come out for like a week or two weeks. Then you could go right back after the bill signing ceremony. All right. I kid, of course. This isn't a great tactic. Also, it's not just for gay issues. Take Pete Domenici. He was a New Mexico senator. He was extremely fiscally conservative, pretty socially conservative. Although, funny thing about that, he did father a child, what in less sensitive times might be called a love child, with his colleague Paul Laxdahl's daughter. Put that aside. But he was very, like I said, very fiscally, very socially conservative. Didn't like paying too much for social programs. But he did have a daughter, Claire. He has several daughters. But his daughter, Claire, was diagnosed with atypical schizophrenia. And Pete Domenici changed his position. He acknowledged that absent the personal experience, quote, I don't believe the subject ever would have come up. So what to think about this? What to think about the transformative role of the personal? At first glance, you say, well, good, good. There's still people. Good that they're not such ideologues. They're not so captured by party or religious orthodoxy that they can't change their minds. Although there are exceptions to that. Take about to retire Representative Matt Salmon. He remained anti-gay marriage throughout his tenure despite his son's homosexuality. It doesn't mean that I don't uh, uh, have respect. It doesn't mean that I don't uh, uh, sympathize with some of the issues. Uh, It just means that... uh, I haven't evolved to that station. Rob Portman apparently has. Aha, but I did hear that phrase, I haven't evolved. That's a good sign that he says evolved. It implies a place he thinks he's headed, unless he's also one of those intelligent design nudniks. So maybe the presence of a representative Matt Salmon not evolving puts a Jeff Flake in better light. I mean, we might sniff and say, oh, someone in your actual house has to be gay in order for you to see gay people as people. I mean, that's actually not even true for everyone. Oh, by the way, small world, small Arizona Mormon world, the cousin who helped change Jeff Flake's mind actually is Matt Salmon's son's boyfriend. All right. So do we give credit or demerit for allowing the personal to transform the political? Well, if it's the only means of changing your mind, that is bad. If personal experience, on the other hand, is one of a broad array of information that you take in and allow to affect you and your thought processes, well, that's something. But what I think of this issue is I think it's a symptom of our siloing, how just impossible it is to penetrate with anything other than a family member, right? What about reasoned argument? What about a set of facts? No, it has to be a lived experience, a son or a daughter going through something, a human vessel of information to even make us consider changing our views. It's human nature, I guess. By the way, Dan Savage says this is gay America's secret weapon, that the family members of so many anti-gay people will turn out to be gay and minds will change. And he also notes in this dynamic, this very dynamic, the gays are among you, they're under your roof. It's why racial attitudes change more glacially. Very few of us white people ever find out that our family members are actually black people, though... This did happen to, as luck would have it, another Republican senator, Strom Thurmond. But I do think racial attitudes can change with integration, with more casual contacts. Those aren't familial, those maybe not as powerful, but they are personal. What I really worry about is attitudes towards the poor. 
Senators will have gay family members. Senators will inevitably have black friends or maybe even staffers. Or, as is currently the case with 2% of the Senate, they might actually be black. But what about poor people? The average net worth of the Senate is $14 million a senator. The poorest senators are much richer than the average American. In fact, Jeff Flake, who turns out to be the zealot of this spiel, is listed as the poorest Republican senator. And he does have mortgage debt, but the poorest Republican senator also has Apple stock worth upwards of $100,000, according to disclosures. So when will a senator by the time he or she is in the Senate, ever meet an actual poor person, actually get to know what the life of the poor is really like, form an opinion of poverty actually touched by lived experience. Sure, some senators will talk about how they grew up without much, although now you hear my dad grew up without much, but they didn't, or if they did, it was a long time ago. They'll never have a poor son. They'll never have a poor daughter who needs food stamps, who's a single mom without government assistance would starve. They'll never find out that their chief of staff, oh my God, it turns out you're poor. Changing your mind based on the lives that touch yours is fine, but it's just as important to go out and find some experiences that aren't under your roof already. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi enjoys a high five from Kathy McMorris Rogers. Other just producer Mary Wilson favors a snuggle from Raul Labrador. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, sometimes spoons with Bob Goodlatte. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, aspires to get a chest bump from Duncan Hunter. The gist, you know us from that cuddle puddle with Jeb Henserling and Blake Farenthold. Peru, 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 and thanks for listening. <laughs>